Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. This episode is brought to you in part by Kind. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. If you guys haven't tried it yet, their pressed bars by Kine are the best, in my opinion. Go try the mango apple chia. It's awesome. We've got a special offer for you guys to try 20 Kine snacks with their new snack pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, which is Kine's monthly snacks subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com sports for more details. That's kindsnacks.com sports to learn more and to subscribe to the snack pack. You know your dog is the best part of your adventure, and a great way to keep him happy and healthy is by feeding him the best pet food. That's why you need to check out Canada Pet Food. Canada is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. Check out Canada.com podcast. Hey guys, this next ASP Stories series will be from Nancy Pfeiffer, reading from her book, Writing into the Heart of Patagonia. You can catch her full interview on episode 322. Her website will have all the information about her and her book, and it's nancypfeiffer.com. This reading will be from chapter one. Now enjoy. Writing into the Heart of Patagonia by Nancy Pfeiffer. Patagonia, 1993. A man approached on a horse. His mount, a rusty red beauty, sported the short-trimmed mane and neatly squared-off tail of a well-kept mount. Colorful, hand-woven saddlebags tied behind a sheepskin-covered saddle held groceries from town. The man wore goatskin chaps, a woolen poncho, and the jaunty black beret typical of the region. Crinkles around his eyes spoke of years of squinting into the sun. This man and his horse belonged to this place in a way I could only dream of. He paused on the banks of the rain-swollen river to stare at us a group of college students up to our knees in mud and dwarfed by huge backpacks. Wet and hungry, we had been stacked up on the wrong side of the river for days, our next food supply a few kilometers away on the other side of the torrent. He looked perplexed. We had tents, we had expensive rain jackets, we obviously had money, but we had no horses. ¿Por qué no tienes caballos? he asked as he rode into the river. The strong current piled up around his horse's belly. The man gently lifted his feet from the stirrups and placed them on the horse's rump so as not to wet his boots, as his horse strode confidently through the rushing water. That moment I knew. I wanted to travel this country like the people who lived here. I longed to know this place as only one on horseback can. Having ridden horses only a few times in my life, I knew practically nothing about them. This was irrelevant. There was a 13-year-old girl inside of me who desperately wanted a horse. The idea was simple. Return to Koyake, buy a horse, and head south. The reality was a bit more complicated. One evening, everything was done. The sunlight spread in long silver fingers beneath the clouds that were always present to the west. Nimbus was grazing in front of the house. On a whim, I jumped on her bare back. Moments later, we were galloping around the now green pasture. 
Pure exhilaration pulsed through my body as we bounded over open, undulating terrain. All her power was my power. She ran like she wanted to run, and I felt the expression of my joy within her. I was finally mentally ready to go. As if watching an old black-and-white slow-motion movie, I can still see myself leaving the campo. I look back at Sergio and Veronica waving from the yard. After closing the heavy wooden gate behind me, I stepped on the left stirrup and swung my right leg high over the overstuffed saddlebags that contained all my current life's belongings. We headed off down the dirt road across the street. The street was the Carretera Ostrav, the main highway through Patagonia. The continued creation of an all-Chilean north-south road had been one of the most hotly debated issues in Patagonia for 20 years. Unbeknownst to me, the situation was intensifying. It was early November, springtime in the rain shadow of the Andes. While the rich valley-bottom land was greening up, the mountains were still thickly snow-covered. Except that snow line was headed upward instead of down, I had traveled to the other side of the world and found a place much like where I'd come from. This could have been Alaska's Matanuska Valley 50 years ago. For once in my life, I was in exactly the right place at the right time. As I traveled through the fertile grazing land of the Simpson Valley, a desperately needed sense of space slipped into my soul. Alamo trees, tall, fast-growing poplars planted by the homesteaders' as windbreaks, marked the farmhouses scattered across the pastoral landscape. By afternoon, I was walking, claiming Nimbus was tired, while in reality, it was my butt that was sore. Poorly packed gear kept bouncing out of Nimbus's saddlebags. Unable to find a secure place for the hardback books, horse grooming tools, and spare sunglasses I had far too many of, I stuffed them into my own pack. An ancient red truck slowed nearly to a stop. A gray-haired couple stared at me through the cracked windshield of what was likely the first automobile they had ever owned. Mortified, I saw myself through their eyes, not as a woman on an expedition headed for the southern end of the continent, but as an overloaded, disorganized gringa walking down the road, leading a perfectly good horse. By late afternoon, Nimbus tugged on the lead rope, letting me know that it was time to go home. How could I tell her that her sweet pasture was a thing of the past? Every night from now on, we would need to look for a new place with decent grass. What I didn't yet know myself was that behind me was also my last night of uninterrupted sleep. For the next month, I would wake up several times every night to check on and move my horse. That evening, we camped in a small, trashy pull-off with barely enough grass for the night. Trucks rumbled by and dust settled onto my tent. My reality was a poor match for my dream of galloping off across Patagonia on horseback. The next day, unable to face another night beside the road, I marched Nimbus towards a nearby lake. I wasn't headed south, but I didn't care. A pattern for my journey was already being set. A few grain giants, the skeletal remains of a once great forest, stood like sentinels around the lake. Their comrades lay fallen, sinking into the soil. It was hard to believe that early explorers had described this now-open grazing land as an exuberantly vegetated forest. In the 1930s and 40s, Chilean law designed to populate the province had given title to settlers who cleared and fenced their land. With no mechanized way to open the country to agriculture, the pioneers had turned to fire. Spurred by the relentless Patagonia winds, 
Blazes raged up mountainsides into country that would never be good grazing. Fires burned out of control through the winter, destroying towns, homes, and schools. Beside the lake, tall fronds of bamboo grew in feathery clusters. A few kilometers to the west, the same plant flourished in impenetrable mats. During my Knowles courses, fighting my way on hands and knees through the dense foliage of western Patagonia had given me a measure of empathy for the pioneers who had wrestled homesteads from this verdant valley by whatever means they could. Fifty percent of Isen's native forest had been lost or damaged by fire, yet nature's ability to heal herself amazed me. When I arrived at camp, I hiked up a small hill overlooking the lake. A stand of notro trees bent permanently downwind, red flowers flaring to leeward like trees on fire, contrasted with the soft pink of wild rose, the pastel purple of lupin. The delightful scent of a dozen different flowers and the soft sound of wavelets on the shore brought me sweet serenity. With my senses already bursting, a flock of chattering cachanas, twenty lime-green parrots landing in a blazing red tree. Back at camp, cows were in the kitchen, trashing plastic bags, stomping my precious potato flakes into the dirt. I ran cursing at the beasts. My state of contentment, my fragile conception of my own competence, shattered. The next day, a shortcut took me down a rough, two-track dirt road with dozens of gates. At each, I got off Nimbus, opened the gate, walked her through, closed the latch behind me, and remounted my horse. If a single gate were to be locked, it would mean turning around and losing the entire day's travel. While stopped at yet another gate, a man on horseback galloped up. Wool poncho flapping, black cap perched on his head, hand outstretched. He rode a gorgeous alisan, a red horse with a few white underhairs showing through. He greeted me with a handshake. Visitors usually stop at the house, he informed me in Spanish. I had not seen a house, but in the distance was a clump of alamo trees. Begging forgiveness for my rudeness, I said, Permiso, soy extranjero, as if it weren't obvious I was a foreigner. When he asked me where I was headed, I told him the name of a nearby lake. I was not ready to tell anyone I was riding the horse to Cochrane. I will show you the way, he said. Suddenly, I was riding with a gaucho the name given in the early 1900s to the itinerant horsemen of Argentina. He blazed through campo land and forest at a pace I had not traveled before. All too soon, he deposited me on a gravel road and rode off with a wave and a grin. The day wore on. Ahead of me, barbed wire fence lined both sides of the road. Wishing we had camped in the open country we had just passed through at a trot, I examined each wide spot on the road for a place big enough to camp a night with a horse. A man was closing a campo gate. Is this your campo? I asked. No, I only work here. Why? Oh, I was just looking for a place to camp, I said, trying not to sound desperate. I have two friends, Cantadi and Juana, who live just down the road. You could stay there, he told me, describing his friend's house in detail. Very friendly folks, he assured me. I thanked him and trudged onward. No stranger passing by had ever asked to stay at my house. I would not be asking Cantadilla. I inspected every slightly more spacious spot between the fence lines. Nothing wide enough appeared. I marched onward. It was getting late, and the low sun behind me produced an amazing light show. The brilliant bands of a Patagonian rainbow ended right at Cantadilla and Juana's place. I decided to stop. One cannot afford to pass up rainbows. 
Maybe the illusion of colored light cast by the setting sun that led me here was just a coincidence, but Cantadilla and Juana's house was indeed a pot of gold. A place to camp, fresh cow's milk, homemade bread, and best of all, new friends. That evening, a neighbor stopped by to buy some cheese from Juana and stayed to talk. Children these days are so much smarter than their parents, he told me. Take, for example, my, well, my daughter who lives in the city. She can talk on the phone, change the baby's diaper, and open the mail all at the same time. He patted his head and rolled his tongue counterclockwise. Everyone burst out laughing. But I asked in all seriousness, Is it really good to do three things at once? Oh, in today's chili it is necessary, he assured me. On my trip, I had been purposely concentrating on one thing at a time. I didn't read while I ate, I didn't brush my teeth while I packed, and I felt saner than I had in years. If multitasking was essential even here in Chile, how had I survived my life in the United States? If serendipity is the development of events by chance that leads to a brilliant discovery, this evening had been exactly that. As I slipped into sleep, a new confidence accompanied me. I would be taken care of. I would meet the people along the way who would teach me the things I needed to know. Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in downtown Golden. That's bikeparts.com. Hey, ASP listeners, have you ever tried a Kind Bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Well, if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. Try 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with their new snack pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through their Snack Club. Snack Club is Kind's monthly snack subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com sports for more details on that. I love their pressed bars like the mango apple chia bars, or I pretty much guarantee you're going to love their breakfast bars first thing in the morning when you climb out of that hammock. So take a minute and see what they're creating over at kindsnacks.com sports and get your 50% off plus free shipping on your first order. That's kindsnacks.com sports. Dogs make the best partners for outdoor adventures. Good food keeps your dog happy and healthy for those big days. So feed your pets Canaday. Canaday is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. In keeping with their commitment to pets and their people, Canaday has taken the first steps at Canaday Farms to getting involved in growing the ingredients that they use. Go to Canaday.com podcast to try Canaday for free by requesting a free sample and you'll get other special offers too. That's C-A-N-I-D-A-E dot com slash podcast. Again, that's Canaday.com slash podcast. Bent Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bent Gate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? 
The BentGate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. BentGate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. Next morning, I headed off in the direction of a southbound trail that was clearly marked on my map. On the way, I met a man on the road carrying a chainsaw. Can you get to La Horqueta from here? I asked. Si, si, he said. It's a great trail, wide like a road. I thanked him and hurried off. We climbed into the Linga Forest on a broad, well-maintained trail. Each tree with its high, twisted branches told an individual life story, making the lodgepole pines of my youth resemble a cluster of boring clones. Years of fallen linga leaves had left the soil so acidic that only linga and a few mosses could grow, making for open wooded country that was a delight to travel through. Ancestors of this southern beech tree had grown 65 million years ago on the supercontinent Gondwanda. The Nortofagus family was ripped apart by continental drift. Patagonia's linga has cousins in New Zealand and Tasmania. This was my favorite forest on earth, but there was one problem, grass. Camping with horses was about one thing, grass, quality and quantity. Nimbus understood better than I did that the cool, damp understory of the forest lacked anything resembling good fodder. Tossing her head and swishing her tail, she let me know she was ready to go back to the lowlands. She, I was learning, was a strong-headed little girl, but I am also a willful female, and we had not yet come to an understanding. We were off the road system and in the wild country I love, when Nimbus planted her front feet and refused to move. Giving her a strong kick, I told her what I wanted. Complete with a youthful bucking fit, Nimbus and I had our first war. I won. I knew I had to. Still, punishing my horse left me shaken. If the last grass was indeed behind us, I had blown it, and I knew it. Half an hour later, I stumbled upon what I took as deliverance, an open meadow and a tumble-down corral. The grass was short and barely green at this altitude, but there was grass. I was halfway through cooking dinner when Nimbus looked up, her eyes ablaze with mal intent. She laid her ears black, flat along her head, and hobbles and all jumped the log wall of the broken-down corral. To my astonishment, she galloped down the trail in hobbles, faster than I could run without. Boots unlaced, I stumbled behind her. My poor girl was sweating and lunging. Pursuing her just made her run faster, but I couldn't stand letting her out of my sight. At last, her pace slowed. I lagged a bit farther behind. Exhausted, she hung her head in defeat. I slipped the rope over her neck, undid the hobbles, and led her back to camp. I have a long history of talking people into expeditions they are unsure about. At least my human companions are able to say, No, Nancy, I do not wish to go on your crazy adventure. And they frequently do. Poor Nimbus did not have that option. I had bought her. However, she had just made her statement. She did not want to go on this trip. What was I to do now? Tucked inside my little pyramid shelter, I dozed fitfully. Outside, sleet was turning to snow. I felt sorry for Nimbus out in the storm. Part of me realized I was being ridiculous. Chilean horses spend the entire winter outside in the rain, wind, and snow, a barn, an unheard-of luxury. 
Her life with me was, in this way, no different than if she were still back in her pasture. As I lay awake, listening to snow pelt the nylon walls, I wondered how I could return to Knowles and explain that I had given up on my expedition because my horse did not want to go. When I finally slept, I dreamed of carrying a boyfriend around on my back and of being able to talk to horses. The early morning sun melted the piles of snow that had drifted in around the trees, changing both the scene outside my tent and my mood. I did not want to give up on my expedition, but I had no idea where the trail went from here. Leaving Nimbus to graze whatever grass she could find, I took off on foot. A tremendous amount of work had gone into this old ox cart road. Log bridges made of now rotten timbers hung sway-backed over deep chasms, a certain death trap for a horse punching through. Soon I was scrambling over a down log every six feet. This trail hadn't been maintained in years. Curiosity and hard-headed stubbornness drove me on. Crawling through deadfall on my belly, I could see the Rio Blanco, the valley that would lead us at last toward La Horqueta, and from there southward. But this was not a route that could be done with a horse. Retreating down the long road I had come in on, I met the same man, again carrying a chainsaw. That trail should take about five hours, he said. I had been gone for two days. It's covered in down trunks, I informed him. Pero los caballos salten, he said. I tried to picture a horse, jumping the hundreds of logs I had crawled over. Maybe his horse, but not mine. On a whim, I asked how long since he had traveled that trail. Veinte años, he said. Twenty years. Was it possible that the trail on my map had not existed for decades? Then I remembered a conversation with Sergio. There are three kinds of trails in Chile. Those that exist on the map, but do not exist in reality. Those that exist in reality, but are not on the map. And those that are located more or less where they are shown on the map. Praying for the third kind, I took off in the direction of another trail, two days away. A week into my trip, I could still see the backside of the mountain where the Knowles Campo was located. We had been traveling in a circle. Was I subconsciously afraid to leave? That night, with more than 30 kilometers behind us, our longest day so far, I believed we were finally on our way to La Horqueta. Camp was set up and dinner in the making when an old man appeared on horseback. Smartly dressed in a gray wool vest, he sat upright on his horse, but as he drew near, I noticed he was even more ancient than I had thought. The deep wrinkles of a hard outdoor life lined his face, but the expression worn told of years well spent. He was hard of hearing and responded to my greeting through a heavy Poblador accent through several missing teeth. Is it okay that I camp here? I asked, assuming this was his land. He looked at me, raised his bushy gray eyebrows, and said nothing. Did he not hear me? Was my Spanish that poor? Did he not understand my question? Or was the concept he was unfamiliar with? Finally, he spoke. Esta sola? This again. Yes, I was alone. Con ese caballo, he asked, with astonishment and obvious disapproval. Yes, with a horse. Yes, I am alone with this horse. Where is your companion, he asked. That remark struck a chord so painful my brain clamped shut. That question, I wasn't ready to discuss with him or anyone else in any language. There are sheep here, he told me. There were sheep nearly everywhere. Did he think the sheep were going to be a bother to me or that I was going to be a problem to the sheep? I was doing my best to understand him, but I could catch only a few words at a time. What about your husband? 
There could be thieves. There might be mountain lions. A smile froze into my face. I fumbled with my stove for something to do. I suspected that the biggest danger I was faced with was the reaction of people like him convincing me that this entire trip was indeed a very bad idea. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of ASP Stories with Nancy Pfeiffer. As I said, you can go check out Nancy's full interview on episode 322. We'll have one more reading from Nancy on next week's ASP Stories episode on Saturday. Have you signed up as an ASP patron yet over at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast? We've launched our new Life Outside the Box series for patrons only. Go check it out. As a patron, you'll also be entered into contests where we're going to be giving away certain demo products that we reviewed as well as books. And you'll have opportunities to ask questions of future guests and maybe even co-host a podcast yourself. So check it out as patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Thanks, guys. And now get out there and have some fun.